everyone, it's Tyler, and welcome back to another episode of Toyota Untold. On today's show, we're talking about diversity and inclusion. And Kelsey, as you know, I tend to bring my whole self to work, so I'm really glad that we work in a place where it's appreciated. And we're so happy that you bring your whole crazy self here every I single do. day. But on a serious note, Toyota has made diversity and inclusion a top strategic priority in creating a workplace culture that is welcoming to all, like Tyler. Mm-hmm. We truly want our team members to be able to bring their full selves to work, and we're dedicated to ensuring that everybody has an opportunity to contribute. But we didn't reach that place on our own. This inclusive culture is a result of continuous improvement through gaining critical perspectives from diverse business partners. And we're so lucky to have one of those business partners on our podcast today. Alexis Herman is a true trailblazer when it comes to diversity and inclusion and making a difference in the business community. She is one of the foremost experts in this field, and we're lucky enough to have her as the chief of our diversity advisory board. And you know what, Kelsey? I didn't know much about her before we got to talk to her. And I was just stunned that probably a lot of the benefits that I've enjoyed throughout my career were probably due to her work early on. Yeah. She really changed the game. So today on our conversation with Alexis, we're going to talk about everything from when she got expelled from school to her time in both the Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton administration and on topics that are popular to everyone like working from home. And later on in the podcast, we're going to be talking with Sandra Phillips Rogers, who is the chief legal officer and our chief diversity officer. And we're going to talk to her about why Toyota has made diversity and inclusion a strategic business priority, how we're doing it, and how it impacts our customers, dealers, and fellow team members. Yeah. So we had a really interesting conversation, especially from Alexis telling the historical perspective of how long this has been, Mm -hmm. you know, a struggle and really what the status is of it today and maybe what we can expect for the future. So, All right. Let's kick it off with Alexis. Let's go. We're here today to talk about the importance of diversity in the workplace. But before we do, we want to go through your resume a little bit just for our listeners. Um, So you've worked for the Jimmy Carter administration as the director of Labor Department's Women's Bureau. When Bill Clinton took office, you were the assistant to the president, director of the White House of Public Engagement, and then you served as the Secretary of Labor. I also loved reading your resume because it's a little bit like, I mean, you have corporate experience, consulting experience, building your own company, and government experience. I feel like I also read about your experience um, when you got expelled from school. You Mm -hmm. said you're a little bit of a rebel. So... How do you take your experience and just bringing that like disruption a little bit to those three areas from government to your personal consulting business to being on the, you know, the advisory boards for companies like ours and Coca-Cola? Well, you know, it's interesting uh, you raised that, Tyler, mm-hmm. because for me getting expelled from high school mm-hmm. at the age of 15, because I dared confront the archbishop of our diocese, Mm -hmm. that our Catholic schools were segregated at a public event where all of the schools had to participate, but the uh, black high schools, of which I was a member, were not allowed. All right, everyone, quick backstory on this. When Alexis was a sophomore, she was expelled for questioning the diocese's exclusion of black students from religious pageants in which white students were allowed to participate. 
following a week of objection from not only her parents, but other parents and fellow students, she was readmitted to the school. So the reality is when I got expelled that day, and I was a pretty good student, mm-hmm. I had one teacher who came up to me and said, Alexis, you did the right thing. Yeah. It was really my first leadership lesson in risk-taking. Hmm. And I recognized that in order to advance any ball, that you have to be willing to go outside of your comfort zone. You have to be willing to take some risk. And to know that when people encourage you and support you, we need that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does make a difference. And so for me, I learned from that experience that it is not so important the individual risk that you take in life because on our career journeys, on our experiences in life, there are all kinds of risks you have to take. Mm -hmm. It's about getting into the habit of Mm risk-taking as a behavior because the more you do it, the less you feel those butterflies in your stomach, the more courage uh, you feel, mm-hmm. and it, the more confidence you start to build in yourself. And you can look at a situation where you know you have to take that risk, and you can say to yourself, you know, I've been here before, mm. and it worked out. Yeah. And so I focus now in my own leadership lessons that I talk a lot about, uh, I talk about the habit of risk-taking, mm-hmm. getting into it. And that was my first. So then how do, because companies like Coca-Cola and Toyota maybe aren't known as big risk takers, right? You think more of like Silicon Valley type companies. How do you, as you know, the chief of our diversity advisory board, how do you push companies to take on risk? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think you have to be very clear about uh, what types of risk you're taking and mm-hmm. to what end. Mm-hmm. You know, just to take a risk, to take a risk, that's not what it's about. Right. It's about understanding why and what's the goal. And the reality for me is that Toyota may not call it risk-taking, but it's a company that fosters a culture of innovation. Yes. And you cannot have an innovative culture. You cannot have a company that fosters innovation without being willing to take some risk. Mm-hmm without being willing to have some failures Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the process. And that expands if you're willing to open up your eyes and your mind to the whole diversity and inclusion space. Because it it is about taking risks just to embrace someone who's different from you. Yeah. To go outside of that comfort zone. Mm -hmm. uh, To learn from other experiences. And so for me, I think Toyota has been pushing that envelope. But sometimes I think we don't recognize that's what we're doing. Yeah. And I think the more you can push for diversity of thought and experiences and exposure at the table, uh, the more we talk about innovation uh, inside Toyota, the more the synonymous word of risk needs to go along with that. Mm -hmm. Because that's really what it's about so that people can feel more freed up. Mm. And I think what's different today in corporate America generally, particularly with millennials, 
and this new generation of workers, people want to bring their whole selves to work. They don't want to have to think about what's proper for Toyota. And so since you've been a champion for diversity throughout several decades, can you can you explain how the landscape has changed since you were expelled from high school and then through adulthood and now working for as a consultant for corporations? How has diverse or the fight for diversity changed and your role in the fight for diversity? How has that mm-hmm. changed also? Well, it's interesting. I'll give you a real practical example. When I was the director of the Women's Bureau in the Carter administration, Mm -hmm. I came in in the late 1970s, the early 80s. I was the youngest presidential appointee for President Carter in my late 20s. I always say I aged the fastest after Mm -hmm. I left that job. But anyway, (laughs) during that time, the question on the table was when women first started to come into the workplace in really great numbers. It was the very first time that you saw women leaving the home and taking on careers. It was the first time we started to experience dual career earners. Mm -hmm. And the question that was being asked was, why are all of these women all of a (laughs) sudden coming into the workplace, right? And my big mantra as secretary, not secretary of labor then, but as director of the Women's Bureau The question should not be why, because women are coming into the workplace for the same reasons as men are, Mm -hmm. to support themselves and their families, but also for the joy that work can bring. Absolutely. The real question needs to be, how are we going to help women reach that accommodation? What are we going to do differently? Right. And so when you ask about what the changes are, if I just take that one snapshot of women during that period, The question needed to be not why, but how. And so for the first time, I helped to work on the first flex time rules in the workplace Mm -hmm. because women needed more flexibility. But guess what? It turned out not just to be about women. Men wanted more flexibility. Shocking. So we got away (laughs) for the first time from the nine to five rule. Uh And we did something really revolutionary. Guess what it was? We went 10 to 6. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. Crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Shocking. And look at where we are now when you talk about changes, teleworking and, you know, all kinds of ways, video conferencing. So Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of of workplace flexibility now that benefits everyone. We had no child care centers then. We opened the first federal women's child care center at the Department of Labor. Wow. And let me tell you. And not just for the moms, for the dads too. Exactly. And we were overwhelmed and we were oversubscribed Mm -hmm. because no one understood then the necessity of childcare and what that meant in particular to support all of these women who were coming into the workplace. And so much of the support systems for women, Mm -hmm. I've seen it change now and it benefits everyone. Yeah. And that's just taking one segment. When I look at what happened with women of color, with uh, ethnic diversity, the changes that have taken place, back then, it was all about the first, the one who broke through. Right. Okay? And it was tough because if you were an African-American, you brought the whole race to work with Mm -hmm. you. Okay? And you 
couldn't be yourself because, you know, the eyes of the company or the world were on you. Right. Well, luckily, that's changed. And we no longer talk about the first this, the first that. Although I have to say in many instances in areas of the business now, uh, whether you're talking about women or people of color or other uh, diversity issues, there's still that in the workplace. Mm -hmm. But it is not to the same degree. Right. I was responsible when I was director of the Women's Bureau, working with then the chair of the EEOC, for promulgating the first sexual harassment workplace mm-hmm. rules. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and 40 years later, what's changed? It's no longer a hidden issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we're talking about it. That's in part what the Me Too movement is mm-hmm. all about. And that's what I mean by bringing your whole self to work. So I just see the journey of the first and all of the issues that surrounded so many of those who were left out of the workplace, mm-hmm. because that has always been my focus for those who had to overcome particular workplace barriers, mm-hmm. that those barriers are now on the table. We still have to work on them, yeah. whether it's pay issues for women uh, and being treated as equals in the workplace. We get confused, I think, today when we look at all the changes and and we're blessed that we've seen so many. Yeah. But people think because there's so many changes and you've seen the first this and the first that, mm. that done. we don't have any more yeah. issues. Right. Does it ever frustrate you that we're still having the same issues? Absolutely and completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the reality is, you know, every generation brings its own set of concerns mm-hmm. and issues. And the nature of the conversation for me is I have to work on my own frustration. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really do. And I have to listen anew to the concerns because the reality is we still have a workplace and a society where women, people of color, the disability community. I mean, all of these communities that we want to include today, Mm -hmm. that we have to be open to hearing their points of view. And we're all the product, I always say this, we're all the product of our own unique experiences. Mm -hmm. The different generations as they get younger are getting more diverse. Are they getting involved as much or not as much? Are they facing, I think we just said that you said they're facing similar challenges. Are there new challenges that they're facing as well? I find this new generation of workers totally fascinating. (laughs) I mean, totally. And let me tell you, their issues, their concerns Mm -hmm. are very different from when I came into the workplace and when you came into the workplace. Okay? And let me give you a very practical example. Mm -hmm. We just had a marvelous conversation inside our diversity advisory board family. Mm on this new generation of workers with Toyota. Mm -hmm. And there was one statistic that came out of that dialogue that I went, wow. Do you know what it was? What? 63% of millennials today care more about a company's community engagement, societal engagement, the issues of diversity and inclusion 
in their workplace mm-hmm. than they do about a company's profit margin. Yeah. Yeah. It's not so much for the millennial generation about how much money you make, but how do you make the money that you make? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are the That's values yeah. that you bring? So I guess when it comes to diversity in a company, because you've worked with several different companies, what does it mean or what happens if a corporate lacks diversity? Like, how can you, how can you tell? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, or, first of all... And what could someone do if they work for a company that is in that position and how could they help? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's important to get a definition of diversity. <laughs> you know, a yeah, lot of times we just throw words around mm-hmm. and we don't know what it really means. Mm-hmm. And every company has a different culture. And so I never talk diversity without also talking about inclusion. Yeah. Because it is about diversity and inclusion. And people will say to me, Secretary Herman or Alexis, you know, what's the difference? I always say diversity is about being invited to the party, about being invited to the dance. But inclusion is getting asked to dance. Mm -hmm. It's getting on the dance floor. Okay. And so when you know you're invited and you can also get on the dance floor and do your thing, Mm -hmm. that's when you know you've got diversity and inclusion working together. That's Mm -hmm. a great analogy. And so for too many companies, they focused on the diversity representation and they say, look at us, we're doing pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But let's look at the inclusion. Where are they? What kinds of jobs? What kind of assignments? Are they getting the promotions? Are they in the leadership ranks? Mm -hmm. So at Toyota, we had to spend a lot of time talking about that and looking at all of the various components that make up this tremendous company. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget in one of my early exercises, you know, we were very big on the trainings and the meetings. And one of our Japanese executives I asked, what does it mean to you? And I'll never forget this moment. Do you know there's no translation for the word diversity in the Japanese language? Really? Hmm. There's no translation for it. So we had to take a moment and say, okay, let's find a word in the Japanese culture Mm -hmm. that communicates this North American term and experience so that it is relevant for our Japanese counterparts. Mm -hmm. And it took some time to do that, but we got there. I separate companies out into what I call upstream companies and downstream companies. Mm -hmm. Okay, Toyota is a downstream company. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment. An upstream company would be folk who are out there working on the oil rigs and the Texas oil fields, Mm -hmm. okay? A lot of your manufacturing companies or upstream companies, meaning they are not close to the customer, Mm -hmm. okay? Right. So they don't see like a downstream company who that customer is. They don't have to go face-to-face. Coca-Cola is a big downstream business. Mm -hmm. It's all about the customer and engagement. Mm -hmm. And guess what? The customer focus in Toyota is just as important. Do you know that the Hispanic community we, the Toyota brand, they have the largest yeah. share of the yeah. automotive industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Women, yep. okay, yep. and big customers of the future. But right now, as a brand, the Toyota brand 
women are the biggest purchaser Mm -hmm. in the automotive sector. So how do you keep making sure that you're going to be a diverse business with diverse thought and leadership at the top of the company here that can continue to engage and make sure with these changing demographics that we're going to be at the top of our game. Millennials, okay? Toyota, it's the number one brand for millennials. We're going to be the biggest purchasers of the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Millennials. What do you care about, Kelsey? I care about my freedom. (laughs) 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 To do what I want, when I want. Yeah. And you care about social engagement. Yeah. You care about the community folks. Yeah. And what else do millennials care about? The environment. The environment, yeah. Mm -hmm. Big, big issue for them. And guess what Toyota's all about? Yep. The environment. We're big mm-hmm. in that space. So we've got to bring all of this together. together so yeah. what do I do with a company? I talk about those customers. I talk about their business. Mm-hmm. I say it's not just the right thing to do or the nice thing to do. It's the smart thing to do mm-hmm. if you're going to grow your business for the future and be relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In your opinion, what is the most urgent diversity issue in America today? I don't believe there is one most diverse issue. Mm-hmm. I think it is all about this question of inclusion. inclusion yeah. yeah. I think it is all about the lens that we wear and can we raise our own thinking and mindset? Can we take off the sunshades mm-hmm. and really see this new world with all of the various elements? that make up this great country of ours and not marginalize anyone. But here in North America, uh, we have all various segments of our society uh, that have to continuously be brought to the table. And we're also a nation of immigrants. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so many of our uh, workplace partners today in this economy Uh, immigrants are a very significant part of our workplace. So we have to be open to all of these experiences if we're going to continue to grow. Absolutely. So I guess the question is, what's next? I mean, I feel like you're doing everything. You're, you know, leading major companies to answer these questions and really challenge themselves. What is your future continuing to be in helping guide and shape this area of diversity and inclusion? I'll tell you what I am so excited about for the future. There's a term called ESG. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it stands for environment, society, and governance. And guess what? For the first time, uh, our big institutional investors are now starting to grade companies and score them in this way. It's called an ESG hmm. index scoring. Okay. And guess who's driving that? It's me. <laughs> it's <laughs> <you>. millennials. <laughs> it's millennials. Because we're talking about $23 trillion mm-hmm. in terms of these the investment houses in the world today. And millennials are saying, it's great to get a return on dollars. It's great to see the margins and the profits grow. But we also want to know about the values Mm -hmm. of those companies. Mm -hmm. We want to know what are they doing on the environment. Mm -hmm. We want to know under that S, under society, 
What are they doing with diversity and inclusion? Mm -hmm. Where are the women? Uh, where are the people with uh, disability? Where are the people of color? We, have, we hear a lot today about the LGTB community. Mm -hmm. If I could sing, I'd sing. Our day has come right on this microphone. It's a song from my generation. You probably don't know it. I don't know any rap music. That's all right. But let me tell you. It was another song called the, This Magic Moment. Mm -hmm. I know that one. I'm you know that yeah. one? Yeah. Well, it's our magic moment. That's, That's where awesome. we are. Secretary Herman, Alexis Herman, thank you so much for yeah. joining thank us on Toyota you. and Tom. Thank you. I enjoyed it. So, Kelsey, I left that interview with Alexis thinking, what a legend. She has seen and done so many things. Seriously. She has been working on the front lines of diversity and inclusion for throughout so many years and on so many different fronts. And I just think it's so cool to hear from somebody who has been committed to standing up for underrepresented people for so long. Yeah. And not only that, she's here at Toyota helping us make sure that our company is doing this right. as well. We're so lucky to have somebody who really knows her stuff when it comes to how we can make a more inclusive environment for our team members. Absolutely. So now that we've talked to Alexis and learned a bit about the history of diversity and inclusion and how we've gotten to where we are today, we're not going to stop there. We're going to figure out what we need to do for the future, which is where our Chief Diversity Officer, Sandra Phillips-Rogers, comes in. Okay, so today we're with Sandra Phillips-Rogers, General Counsel and Chief Legal Officer and Chief Diversity Officer at Toyota Motor North America. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Awesome. So can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? I was born and raised in Beaumont, Texas, and I'm the youngest of uh, four siblings. And uh, I grew up very much in a competitive, try-to-do-your-best household, whether it was beating at tennis, beating at checkers, whatever. And, and academics is ultimately where I think we ended up being most competitive. So I think the lesson growing up for me is, is that it is your job to do as well as you can and then pass it on to the next generation. You know, I went to school. I'm trained as a lawyer. I've been practicing since 1991. And uh, I came to Toyota in 2012 as an assistant general counsel and uh, became the general counsel and group vice president in 2015. And then in January, I picked up some additional responsibilities, chief diversity officer, and I also have compliance and audit office, social innovation, and product regulatory affairs reporting into me. So I, I've got a full plate. I love it. I've always been very passionate about what I do. I'm passionate about cars. Uh, first car that I drove was a Toyota Celica, and and uh, I have owned a series of Toyota and Lexus products my entire life. So can you tell us a little bit more about your role as Chief Diversity Officer and what that entails? So the Chief Diversity Officer is, is really charged with the development of diversity and inclusion programs, uh, practices, both internally and externally. And so whether that's the team member internally, uh, whether it is our customers, our dealers, our suppliers, 
what's going on in the community because we think that you have to have diversity and inclusion across the entire spectrum, kind of a 360 approach. It all feeds off of each other. When we have strong dealers and suppliers who are diverse, then that feeds internally to promote engagement among team members. And the reverse is true. And so diversity and inclusion allows us to have a workforce that is engaged and motivated to do their best. And I think that's where we succeed as a company. Why is it important now and why was it important then for Toyota to create this entirely new group and have a whole team dedicated to diversity and inclusion? Our journey for diversity and inclusion has been going on for 15, maybe longer years. So it's not something that is new. I think the chief diversity officer role Uh, was developed somewhere perhaps around 2015. And the whole purpose there is is that this is an officer role that reports into the CEO, and I'm the third chief diversity officer. And what I think that really sends is a message to our organization and externally that we value diversity and inclusion at the highest levels in the company. And the reason to have a chief diversity officer or an organization that is focused on that, and here it's under social innovation. Social innovation is challenged with putting forth the right types of priorities around philanthropy, uh, environmental sustainability, workforce readiness, mobility, as well as diversity and inclusion. But I believe diversity and inclusion is a core asset of our company. It's the glue that, as I mentioned before, that kind of keeps all of the things that work around the wheel, team member engagement, community involvement, uh, and service, you know, dealers, suppliers. Diversity and inclusion really keeps that together. So when you look at it that way, it's a business imperative. And more and more, what we're finding is is that as generations come, millennials, whatever you you know, Gen, you know, Z is next. That they're looking for a place where they can bring their full selves to work in an atmosphere that's going to engage them to be innovative. And when you have diverse people around the table who feel included, who feel empowered, then they're going to give you their best. And that's how you unlock innovation. And I think where we are now as a company and as an industry, as we're looking to transform to mobility, I think diversity and inclusion has never been more important than it is now. Because we've got to set the right environment to get the most out of our team members. And diversity and inclusion is a key way to do that. Yeah, they want to be able to see themselves at a place where they want to work. Absolutely. So can you speak to what Toyota is doing today to ensure our our stance, you know, our our level of diversity inclusion from an internal standpoint? So I think one of the real success stories is our business partnering groups. We have 12 
business partnering groups, and almost 90 chapters just in North America. And they're focused in key areas, whether it's, you know, African-American collaborative or TOTOS or Toyotability or veterans. And I think that that gives us the grassroots involvement for diversity and inclusion. When you break it down further, I think other areas that are making a difference is what we're doing to motivate, encourage, develop, and promote women. I think the Women in Leadership program is second to none. And I've seen women come through that program who are forever changed. They've got a new perspective on who they are, what they can be, and how they can contribute. So the North American Women's Conference, again, we've, we've had wonderful offshoots come from that, whether it be sponsoring programs or other executive development type opportunities, mentoring. I think that's what's really moving the needle a lot. And I also think that where we are, again, in our trajectory as an industry and as a company, that mobility for all and setting as a goal that as a company, we want to help all people move in whatever way that means. I think that is something that's resonating with team members and it's incentivizing them in a way to get more involved and get more engaged. When you look at Toyota as a whole, do you find that the um, particulars of diversity and inclusion are different based on the segment? Meaning, does the discussion of diversity and inclusion differ in the plants as it does here in the corporate headquarters or logistics or, you know, other, other parts of our business? Well, I think at the end, we're more similar than we're different because we're all striving for the same thing, and that's to have a workforce that is engaged and and that feels valued. But of course, there are challenges in certain parts of the company that are unique. You know, for example, if you're looking at, you know, R&D and the heavy focus on a STEM background, you know, this isn't unique to Toyota, but we still are not getting the numbers of women and people of color coming into that program. And then, of course, you know, moving up and being promoted to uh, executive positions. We, we still have a ways to go, I think, in terms of filling that pipeline up. And that is a challenge. I, I think if you go to the plant, you know, it, 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 it is probably historically the case that there are some jobs that, that men tend to occupy. Uh, and that women may or may not even know are available to them. And so we, we've got to do more there, I think, to, to uh, try to position a career in manufacturing as one that is suited for men and women equally. Of course, the best case we could make is the women who lead our plants now. That has made a tremendous difference. But, you know, it still doesn't change the fact that manufacturing may have more historically uh, male uh, focus. Mm -hmm. And so we have got to say, hey, look, women can do these jobs and do them extremely well. 
And not only that, but they can become the presidents of the plants. But but that takes special effort. Um, it just won't happen on its own. You've, you know, and I think the other piece is in our technology space, whether it's in the connected or autonomous. Same thing there. There's a lot of need for STEM background. Um, so when Alexis Herman was here, who's from our diverse, diversity advisory board, she spoke broadly about why diversity and inclusion is important for companies, especially as consumers are becoming more socially conscious, as well as our investors, and that they now grade companies on things like environment, society, and governance. In your opinion, why is it important for an auto manufacturer in specific to have a high score on those types of scales? Well, I think it's important for all companies to strive to have excellence demonstrated in environmental, social, and governance. I think for the reasons we discussed with millennials, uh, you know, and Gen Y, those team members and potential team members are looking for a more holistic experience. Uh, They're looking for things that uh, they're passionate about, that they care about, uh, that really drives them to want to unlock their own potential and maximize it to the highest. So that's really one of the main reasons is we need to continue to be competitive for the future. But as I mentioned, I think this also factors into how we're going to innovate in the future. And so these things become more important if we're going to stay competitive. And I think that what the investment community is doing now, it, it's, it's, it's really standing for the proposition that you can do well by doing good. McKinsey did a study that showed that companies that have more diverse boards and, and C-suite executives do better by 30%. And those that don't underperform by about the same amount. So if you think about it from that standpoint, as a company, you want to maximize all of those opportunities. You want to have engaged team members who feel like they can contribute. You know, you you want to have a company that focuses on being a good steward in the community. You know, you want to have a company that wants the 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 businesses that it does it partners with, that they share those same values. So I think we'll see more of it. I think we've already seen the number of diverse and women, uh, uh, board members, women and people of color increase since the investment community has started to put a focus on that. The auto industry absolutely needs it, I think, to unlock the innovation that we know we're going to need to move to this future of mobility. And so then the the index and the the ratings are are really just to kind of gauge where you're tracking versus the the rest of the industry and the rest of the you know business world. These scores give evidence to the marketplace of the type of company you are and what you stand yeah. for. So it's not it's not a panacea, but it is some evidence to show what you stand for. And if, again, you are a company that wants to be known for doing well and doing good, then those indices are good indicators. 
Are you just as competitive about these as you are with your family members? Oh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I could control things a little bit better when I was a kid, you know. If I wanted to beat my sister in tennis, maybe I could practice a little harder. But I think that the way I see it is, as a company, we have done a very good job of messaging internally and externally who we are and what we value. Most people who know us know about the Toyota way. They know about respect for people. They know about continuous improvement. I think these indices and rankings are good because they do demonstrate internally and outwardly what's the scorecard? How are you doing? But make no mistake, for me, what's most important is is that we live out our values to our customers, to our team members, to our business partners, and to our community. If we get recognition, great. If we don't, that's okay too. So I, I, I think that what excites me the most is when we're in the community doing things that may get no coverage because the team members who are engaged know that they work for a company that cares enough to come on National Public Lands Day and actually paint and clean up and, and just celebrate the community. So I, I, I will say that that is as important. And I've always believed that good works will be recognized. And so all of these other things are on the other end of the continuum. But at the end of the day, we're our business. And we have to do the things that will promote the business. And when it comes to diversity and inclusion, I think we've got a good story there, but we've got to focus on, again, where our next team members are coming, where our next investors are coming, and we've got to consider it all. So I think we've mentioned it a couple of times, and when we were talking with Alexis, she mentioned a lot of the new diversity challenges today being surrounding a changing workforce. So talking about millennials, and I am one, so... I'm going to say us, we. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so how do you think companies and roles are really shifting to meet the needs of these new members of the workforce generally? I, I think we're trying our best. Yeah. I think we've got some early indicators of maybe what's going to make a difference. Uh, again, whether the company has a mission and a purpose that fulfills the greater good community. I, I, I hear that a lot from millennials. They just don't want to come to work and make money. They want to work at a company that, that makes a huge difference to them personally. But we also know that there are statistics that would demonstrate that uh, perhaps unlike Generation um, X, which is me, I'm almost a baby boomer, but I just missed the cutoff. That Whereas when we were growing up and boomers, we wanted to be in a job for life. And millennials appear not to be as motivated by that. Well, okay, we know that. We're trying to make it a great experience for millennials to stay. And I think Toyota can make that case better than a lot of places. But, you know, we've got to have the right work environment. We've got to have the flexibility. We've got to have the technology. So I think the news is, as each generation changes, it's not leaving the other generations behind. Right. I think that's what a responsible company needs to do 
when it comes to dealing with cultural and generational change. Find the common ground and the thread across the generations that you have. And and then everybody try to move forward. Yeah, it's got to be tough when you have a workforce that really varies the, the age range. But I think that probably what will be a, a benefit to the mission of diversity and inclusion moving forward is that I think that the millennials and Gen Zs, Zers, if we call them that, are highly communicative and in touch with their feelings. So that at least you know that they'll tell you what they want in the future. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's so great to hear from someone at your level on on how committed we are to diversity and inclusion. Great. Thank you. Like Sandra, I'm super competitive as well. And I know that we Toyota will continue to be competitive in this space. Yeah, I'm excited to see what the future is going to look like and how future generations of workers will truly change the traditional corporate office atmosphere. Absolutely. So stay tuned for our next episode, which is going to be talking about the Rebel Rally and two women who took a Lexus GX off-road. Truly off-road. They didn't even have like a phone. All they had was a compass, right? That's it. I mean, I can't imagine, but their story is pretty cool. So you're going to want to listen. Our show is produced by Allison Powell. And the music you're rocking out to is by Wes Meixner. We're edited and mixed by Crate Media. Thanks again for listening. And if you enjoy our podcast, please give us your feedback. Hit subscribe, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and email us your comments at podcast.toyota.com. And if you want to talk to me on social media, make sure you tag at Toyota on Twitter and Facebook and tag at Toyota USA on Instagram. Yeah. Who said corporate offices don't have a person managing their handle? It's Tyler. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, it's me and a team. I can't read all of your comments. All right. Until next time. Bye, guys. Bye.